Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Today we're, we're very honored to welcome Penn professor, professor of political science, Bob Vitalis, to discuss his wonderful new book. It's actually got a, a beautiful cover. I, I quite like having the, the hard copy. So thanks for that, Bob. Uh, uh, Oilcraft, the myths of scarcity and security that haunt U.S. energy policy. It's, um, it's a pleasure to have you, Bob, and it's, it's a wonderful book. So thanks for joining us. Oh, this is a great uh, a privilege, actually. Thank you. Now, and in, you know, in talk- I, yeah, go ahead. No, I want to tell you, and you know, I fought with my publisher because I really wanted the orb picture, you know, with Trump at all. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, they wouldn't do it. They said that would date the book, you know, and then they uh, and then they started uh, showing me covers of just uh, the most cliched images that appear in every book on oil, you know, oil right. barrels, oil slicks. But then they came up with this one and people uh, love it. You know, I've uh, they performed a miracle. So, <laughs> so I'm glad it. You know, that their uh, initial rejection of something you wanted turned into to something beautiful, and it, and it is uh, it is quite a nice thing to have an academic text. Um, I think beauty still matters. You know, so so I'm, I'm glad. Um, you know, in, in discussing oilcraft, it's, it's going to be a, a great discussion because um, you know clearly that the whole book seems to be about the, um, the the myths that have taken hold of a number of people throughout history and today, both politicians, uh, scholars, and, and quite quite a lot of debunking goes on about the nature of what the kind of myth of oilcraft is and and how that myth functions and and what we could gain by by debunking it and getting rid of it. But um, but perhaps first we could start with you know how. How did you come around to noticing that all these uh, mistakes that scholars and politicians were making historically seemed to be so pervasive as to constitute something like a kind of faith, something ki- kind of uh, akin to to witchcraft? And apologies to our Wiccan listeners, but um, yeah, when 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 did you realize that there was something strange going on, and and how kind of whether it's from the right or the left, there seemed to be some kind of unity that that blinded people to what's really going on with oil and and, and with respect to uh, how it is just a normal commodity. Unlike they, everyone seems to think. Well, you know, it it took a while actually, and you know, I left this out of the book, but it really, the book is really a self critique, you know, or, or trying to come to grips with things that I believe. So I certainly would have written, you know, back. 15 years ago about, you know, about how oil is central to hegemony and how uh, the United States was able through Saudi Arabia to secure a price that was not too high, not too low. And, you know, and I realized uh, um, I was making these claims, but I had no evidence for them. You know, I, mm-hmm. there were, you know, it was a matter of faith in some sense. Right. And and then started to see I mean, then there were then I would hear people make claims that were just patently untrue. Right. Mm-hmm. And as I listened to as I listened to these, you know, uh, and talk to talk to folks who who were also uh, uh, questioning some of these, you know, basic truths. Uh, my thinking moved in the direction that, uh, you, you know, you now find in this book, basically. But, you know, it took a while and it was a, across the course of a fairly long period of time, teaching in classes, giving talks, giving talks, for instance, um, uh, when the when the uh, uh, Iraq invasion was beginning. You know, I remember giving a talk and uh, uh, Ed Herman was there, you know, in the teaching with me and he just thought I was mm-hmm. a nut. 
because <laughs> it, it, it goes without saying that this had to be about oil. You know, and I tried to explain, you know, the, the major firms are the, not the least bit interested in seeing instability in the Middle East, et cetera. But, you know, so it, 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 it really the, the, the 2003 invasion, I think, mattered a lot to me uh, in mm. terms of in terms of that's when I started to uh, 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 started to see myself as someone who was a critic of the left from the left. Like my goal mm. was to explain to folks, you know, uh, yes, we should oppose these things, but you know, your your claims aren't making any sense, and that uh, often uh, gets me into trouble. So, no, of course, that's look. You know, left anchor is is in part something we started in order to uh, help do both policy proposals for the left and theorizing in a way that that would help. Um, you know, direct things in a way that's productive because it's very tempting as bad as capitalism is, as bad as imperialism is, it, you know, these just so stories can, can easily emerge. Um, because there are very real things that are happening that are terrible and corrupt. So, so it seems like, you know, often even scholars don't do the work of justifying those claims sometimes because of how it helps the overall picture that they're putting forward, right? Exactly. Or as someone said to me, you know, if it, this was around the time of the Iraq invasion as well. Um, hey, you know, uh, uh, in, in an anti-war demonstration or in, in attempting to mobilize opposition uh, to a foreign policy, we don't have time for getting it exactly right or the or the, the details don't matter. Right. <laughs> you know, and, 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 yeah. and they're, they're like the scholar in me, you know, it, uh, uh, was, was I was troubled by that, actually. You know, because sure. uh, I think it does matter, and and uh, yeah. So you even you even had a, Chom a Chomsky quote about that, right? Where where he says, you know, as long as we've got some motivations going on, the accuracy doesn't really matter. We get, we've it's it's almost like we're doing some kind of psychoanalysis, and so once we've gotten to the mind of one of the evildoers, then we don't need to back up the actual you know political ec economic relations or something. <laughs> I was really surprised when I stumbled upon that uh, quotation. You know, so you know. When I wrote this book, I had I had a, a, a scheme. You know, I had basically the three propositions that you that you know I lay out in the book, but I didn't know what I was actually going to write. I didn't know what the mm. book was going to look like, and it's the first book I've written where I didn't do I didn't travel to archives and do archival work. It really is a matter of you know I have these understandings, reading the sec going back and reading critically the secondary literatures uh, that mattered, and just it, it, as you know notice in the book reading the newspapers carefully and that's that's a thing that you know Chomsky has been doing uh, for 50 years with devastating uh, consequences. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you didn't just read the section by Tom Friedman because, because uh, uh, you know <laughs> that that could have that could have misdirected your research a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and to <clears throat> maybe just to clarify for listeners here, it, you, you you're not saying that uh, the, 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 like the American empire doesn't exist. You're questioning like a certain type of, I think you call it like raw materialism, uh, analysis of it as, as if it were about a sort of economically rational exploitation of like the world's, you know, quote unquote, key commodity oil. And that like everything we makes sense in light of like rationally seeking out those supplies somehow specifically for like the American, you know, like project. Right. You're saying it's more complicated than that. Absolutely. I mean, 
I was um, 18 during the uh, uh, oil crisis of 1973. And at Stony Brook University, I was commuting to school at the time. So that means I was caught up in the long gasoline lines. I took my first revisionist. It was, you know, these folks described themselves as revisionist diplomatic historians. And I was learning the revisionist accounts of the origins of the Cold War. And it and it was conventional at that time by neo-Marxists and, you know, left liberals, uh, the 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 uh, new left that was emerging, writing in their, you know, in their uh, mimeograph magazines and then writing in in uh, uh, more formal accounts. It was it was it was a basic claim to believe that what the United States was doing abroad was seeking control of raw materials of all sorts. And wars were explained on that basis. And the argument was these were the real material, you know, groundings of the war when, and this is how Noam used to talk about it all the time, when, you know, whatever whatever politicians said, uh, 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 these were these were really um, uh, excuses, right, for, for or to disguise what were the real material reasons for the wars and and the and the need to control raw materials of all sorts with standards so that is how the left explained the Vietnam war back when i was you know coming into kind of political consciousness but also you know kind of learning the scholarly enterprise um, and then as as i note in the book something funny happens because you won't ever find anyone besides Vijay Prashad arguing that, that you know, what the United States is doing around the world is controlling resources of all sorts. He's still, he's, he's literally written that, that the, that the, that the purpose of the Afghanistan invasion was to control the raw materials of Afghanistan. But he's hmm. on the left, he's an exception to this rule. Now we don't look back, you don't ever find lefties anymore uh, uh, explaining the Vietnam War as the as the search for you know ex raw material or the need to or the need to uh, 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 um, make uh, Vietnam the uh, captive of for Japanese capitalists. These are all arguments that were being made at the time. But then what? But what we do still believe is that oil is like the key or secret to U.S. hegemony. I mean, to put, to put, to put it uh, boldly, right? The boldest, the, the boldest or starkest version of the left's claim is that control of the of the of the oil resources, or I should say, alleged control of the oil resources. Because I don't think any control exists, but the alleged control of oil resources are central to uh, the American hegemonic project. That is how the United States secures its. Germany uh, vis-a-vis its uh, capitalist competitors. It's typically the way it's seen, Europe and Japan. And this has been that was an argument that Brzezinski made, but reversed it back in the 70s that it, of course, the U.S. never does things like this, but were the Russians to seek, were the Soviets to gain control of the Persian Gulf, uh, <laughs> they would then be able to use this resource to uh, destroy the Western Capitalist Alliance or the NATO Alliance, etc. And so uh, um, lefties today still make, the, still make that basic claim. You can find and, it in the, in the uh, most recently in the um, London Review of Books. 
It's it's very interesting how you go about debunking the various claims. Um, but but one that I I really appreciated was so if if the goal is to say have force projection in order to kind of uh, you know prevent the the hiking of the oil prices or in s- some way control control the supply or or the price, uh, it seems very strange that that over time, no matter what we or or any other nation states have done, the fluctuations in prices of this commodity seem to be well aligned with other commodities. So it seems to, to either not be the case or to be perfectly mirroring uh, things that the market seems to have done on its own. Well, you know, there, uh, how, to, uh, how to put this? There are variants, uh, variants in how leftist analysts think about what the, what the uh, a process of control of oil resources is means okay but i try to you know kind of break it down into a in into its kind of logical parts or what, what it must mean uh for most folks which is it's either either somehow the U, u.s force projection gets more oil to market than otherwise would be the case or gets it at at a lower price than otherwise would be the case and there's no evidence for any of this and you know i'm just you know i find myself in strange a lot in a strange alliance with uh cato types these days, libertarians around these <laughs> questions, defense intellectuals like Barry Posen, who's come to the same conclusion from a very, very different uh, point of view. And then the most surprising one is, you know, I interviewed uh, Doug, Doug Fife, Douglas Fife for this uh, 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 project. And Fife, you know, believe, believes the same thing. Um, that didn't stop him from, you know, wanting to take over Iraq for whatever sets of reasons they did. But I get, but I guarantee you, it wasn't that the that, uh, um, you know, uh, Fife and his principals in the White House were thinking we need to do this in order to control the Iraqi oil resources. Yeah, one uh, uh, an interesting piece uh, piece of data that you you marshal here is that. You know, the the U.S. sort of like quasi occupation of the Persian Gulf region, you know, all the various deployments we have there cost as much of the Cold War, you know, as, as I guess as a percentage of our economy. And that value is more than uh, the value of all the oil exported from every country in the region. And, you know, <laughs> that's that's that includes, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and Kuwait and the UAE. You know, I mean, we're just talking about trillions and trillions of dollars. And so, like, right. so- economic rationality doesn't enter into the equation here. Right. Or you could say, you know, if well, that's why it's. It, that's what leads to the conclusion, right? You've either got there, there. There are two conclusions to make. Some, I'm sure, some officials still believe, you know, oil is strategic resource. I, uh, you know, I, I, had, I made one trip to Saudi Arabia. I wrote, I wrote an earlier book on on the United States's early relationships with Saudi Arabia, and that came out in the early 2000s. And I made a trip to Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, uh, when I was working on that book, and I was with two undercover military intelligence people, one from the Air Force, one from uh, the Army, and and they. You know, they believed the oil resources were a strategic uh, 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 commodity that one must control because there were all sorts of hostile powers that would seize them unless we were vigilant. And the, and the 
other part of that conventional argument is, so we were backing the wrong people in the Middle East, which was Israel. If we stopped being so st- such strong supporters of Israel, we would have less problems in, in, in the Persian Gulf. And after all, it's the Persian Gulf that, that uh, matters the most. So there are still, you know, I'm not going to convince every military official or what I call armchair strategists or people who play or what Doug Fife sort of says is people stuck in this mold of thinking like risk, like the risk board game and their risk, mm-hmm. risk, risk view of the world. I'm not going to convince them that uh, there's no threat to those oil resources and that you can't just let you can't just let the oil flow. But but you, you can imagine this, right? The amount of if if the U.S. was there in order to secure the flow of oil, the amount of money, the amount of, of wealth or treasure that it's spending, as you pointed out, you know, kind of eclipses what the savings are, or, you know, or what the actual costs of this oil are for the United States or United States refiners every year. So you can imagine an entirely different scenario where you took those resources and you uh, subsidized, let's say, refiners for a, a problem of uh, oil shutdowns or you you know or, or emergency shutdowns or restrictions on the flow caused by either political instability or or uh, a refinery fires and so forth but um, uh, instead we, instead we have the we have the uh, fifth fleet there and we have the central command and it's just taken for granted uh, by the entire blob, basically, that that right. this is in fact this is in fact the most central part of what the United States has to do abroad, right? Why the Middle East still matters. Now we're seeing we're seeing you know all of a sudden noise on the right and the left about hey maybe we have to rethink some of these things. Maybe we don't have to be there as much. The Middle East has just been a problem. Maybe we should get out of there. But but those analysts who make those claims make this fundamental mistake, which is something like this: we no longer have to be in the Persian Gulf because the United States is now an oil exporter and we mm. and we are now energy independent and we don't have to worry about that instability in the Gulf which is which is also a, 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 a grave mistake because it misunderstands what the nature of the world economy is and even as you know, even as the United States is producing more oil, through uh, you know uh, 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 fracking and is exporting oil, the United States is still part of the U.S. oil refiners and producers and exporters are still part of that world economy, and there is no way of insulating the price of oil in the United States from price rises and falls due to supply restrictions, fires, uh, you know the uh, right. uh, uh, pandemic, etc. So there is no there the the idea of energy independence for the United States is a fiction, but it seems like that's the way folks think about it. It's either we 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 were in the Persian Gulf because we needed that oil. That's that. That's the first argument, right? And then folks will disabuse people of that idea and sort of say, well, you know, we didn't actually get lots of our oil from the Middle East at any point. Uh, and, and it was a and it was a declining share over over time, over the past 10 years. But it's our allies that really need it. And aha, so it must be that the United States is in the Persian Gulf. This is how liberal internationalists tell it, of people like John Eikenberry. Well, we're really there to guarantee the flow of oil to our allies, right? It's one of the goods. It's one of the uh, <laughs> uh, 
public goods we provide through, you know, these uh, uh, military resources that that you're uh, criticizing the expenditures. Oh, yes. The U.S. famously, famously selfless and helping of others. That's the U.S. Let me ask, Bob, because uh, first, maybe what your book shows is that military intelligence is indeed an oxymoron, as the joke goes. Um, but maybe, you know, what about the, the kind of um, response that says, well, sure, sure, you know, it's, it's not uh, necessarily, you know, U.S. energy policy or, or state security or even, um, you know, overall economic security. But in the same way that, say, arguments about slavery say, well, you know, surely capitalism is liberatory because slavery wasn't actually uh, as efficient and as productive as, you know, free labor would be. And, and, and the response to that is, well, there certainly were, you know, vested interests who profited tremendously from slavery, even if many did not. And capitalism seems to actually enrich the very few and certain particular winners at the expense of overall GDP or at the expense of industries and so forth. So couldn't it just be that there were certain, um, you know, if not just the oil industry in the U.S., certain companies that were benefited, certain kind of cor- corrupt, uh, you know, nepotistic allies of those state actors who were getting kind of hooked up in Iraq and so forth. What, what about those arguments that, that this was all a cover to, to kind of help uh, Dick Cheney's, you know, you know uh, companies and so forth? You cannot deny the case that there were uh, there was a profit to be made. There's um, there's wealth generating opportunities that have occurred over these past 30 years. Sectors of the economy, regions of the country, uh, think tanks, etc., have all you know benefited from the uh, uh, U.S. presence in the Persian Gulf and the close relationship with the with the with the monarchies there. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, and I I write what I can about it and demonstrate what I what I can about it. But I don't think ultimately that's that's a satisfactory explanation um, for the continued presence there. Um, uh, in, you know, I think there's I think there's I think there are other components of that explanation or that it, it's not simply a matter of vested interest. Uh, pushing the United, pushing one administration or another administration uh, uh, to pursue these uh, projects. Otherwise, they wouldn't. I think something else is going on, or a couple of other things are going on, and it's what I tried to uh, uh, lay out in the book. W- well, one is again, there are many people in power who sincerely believe <laughs> that this, you know, the United States must be there in the Middle East in order to protect the flow of oil, right? And they cannot be disabused of that. Those, and, and the, fact that the, the fact that those ideas have so much power make it hard for politicians who think otherwise, right, to do anything about it. And, and, and as I say in the book, and the reason why that would be the case is or, or politicians, you know, uh, political leaders, take Obama, for instance, um, uh, uh, Ob- you know, Obama, what he, the problem for Obama was um, if he were to act to change policy dramatically, he'd get hammered by, you know, his, by his opponents inside the party 
and his opponents across the aisle, et cetera. And politicians worry about that hammering or figure something like this. It's, it's like a risk adverse strategy. Um, uh, as long as it does, as long as it's not harming the United States in some fundamental way, we run more of a risk if we were to not, if we were to, let's say, pull our forces out and not be able to respond to some crisis like when you know imagine you know, imagine this dream unfortunately it's a pipe dream but you know the the saudi monarchy is starting to collapse like the egyptian uh uh, uh i call him monarch but he wasn't you know the egyptian autocracy uh was collapsing at, at a certain point well if that were to happen then the party in power is going to get hammered by their opponents and so and 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 and, and have to suffer the cost of these Claims that you know you you lost Saudi Arabia on our watch, et cetera. And I think politicians feel trapped, have a very mm. hard time of escaping these, escaping you know, escaping from uh, these uh, uh, beliefs that are, are just so powerfully present. You know, and you could just survey, you know, read foreign affairs, read foreign policy, the extent to which. Uh, um, the blob believes in this strategic need to control oil or the blob doesn't say that the blob says this strategic need to secure the free and continuous access to oil. It, mm. those, they really they have a hard time uh, seeing the world differently. Yeah, so that's a that's a key point there. You're 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 saying it's not just that the like in a in a sense, the left in a way is right for the wrong reasons. Like they, they say that, you know, oil is like the sort of motivating factor for, for United States empire in a mechanical sense that like somebody's got an accounting ledger and they've got to make it, you know, put things in the black. Um, and that's not the case at all. Like we're just pissing money down the drain over there, but it is the case that a lot of the sort of like imperial bureaucracy for lack of a better word does think that controlling the supply supply of oil is an important thing to do. And, and that is a reason why the, uh, why so much uh, money and, and, and human lives and effort has been thrown away in the sort of, you know, black hole of the Persian Gulf, right? Yeah, yes, I, yeah, yes. I think that comes closer. You know, it's, uh, I, you know, I, early on in the book, I cite uh, a forward to a book that was written 15 years ago or so now, or maybe even 20 years or so ago now. And the person who wrote the forward was a guy named Holdren, uh, uh, Stephen Holdren, I think. And Holdren became Obama's science advisor. But way before that, right, he was just, you know, a kind of another uh, engineer in uh, uh, the, the UCAL system. And in the forward to this book, uh, When Nations Clash, he writes that, um, you know, th- there is absolutely no need to go to war for oil. Um, but that only matters if politicians can understand, you know, why this is the case. And, and so, you know, I think they don't work. I think for whatever sets of reasons, um, uh, these beliefs remain the kind of, you know, prime directives for for politicians. Right. 
It, it reminds me, you know, Ryan and I did an episode a long time ago about labor aristocracy. And um, it was a tricky thing that I think we, we got hit from the left a little bit on because Ryan dug into the numbers and, and, and the point, and of course, Ryan, you can, you can correct me or expand on this if you want. The point was not that capitalism isn't imperialist and not that capitalism doesn't exploit countries all over the world. It's just that the economy doesn't require that. And most of the, right, like, like, so, so it's not that it doesn't, and, and this is kind of the debunking of like rational economic liberalism. It's like, this is not how capitalism actually functions. And therefore, like the effect of that is we could, you know, I would love to overthrow capitalism, but like in, in the interim, if, if we like pushed to, for stopping the exploitation, uh, you know, in, in these ways, that's possible without harming workers here in the US. And so like it was something that the left hit us from because we, they, they thought that we were like attacking the critique of capitalism, but actually we we're trying to clarify something that would help, you know, reduce the, the harm and the exploitation. So it seems like a similar kind of thing going on. Yeah. No, you sound, you know, you, uh, you sound like uh, the journalist John Hobson back in 1902. He thought in roughly the same way. He was a critic of imperialism because he sort of said this was this was not this was not certainly not a necessity. There was no absolutely no right. need to control these places for their resources, and that was that was causing great harm, right to you know the to the working class. Uh, right. Inside inside of England, as opposed to imagining, you know, this was what this was what was necessary fundamentally for capitalism to continue, etc. So, so what what do you think then, Bob? What what is the the function of this fiction then? What what ends is it serving besides you know just obviously uh, pulling the wool over the eyes of of political actors and scholars? Like what 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 do you think? You know, what else is there to how this this fiction is functioning? Well. You know, uh, the, here's the part that's not fictional. Okay, here, let me let's let's use the let me work through the example I give in my book uh, toward the very end of the book. I I cite a, uh, a heretical economist. He would have been like not a libertarian, but a right wing economist who was looking at the United States in 1980 when it, the United States was moving in uh, to the Persian Gulf. And the, and the basic premise of why we were moving into the Persian Gulf was to secure the uh, a flow of oil. And he asked this question, what, from the oil crisis on in 1973, why wasn't there any talk about the need to use military force or projection uh, to secure these oil resources? And, you know, if you would even go to Pent to the Pentagon, you know, the Pentagon issues these uh, uh, annual strategic uh, reviews, and there is no talk. I mean, it's uh, Andrew Basevich is the person who kind of discovered this in one of his earlier books. You know, this is a funny thing. Even after the oil crisis and, and uh, uh, seeing ahead to what happens in the 1980s and 1990s, there is no planning in Pentagon documents for any need to, to uh, use military force to secure the Persian Gulf, right? It just wasn't there, then all of a sudden it becomes the policy of Brzezinski and Carter, and then and then uh, Reagan doubles down on it. And what this economist said was, well, it can't be because uh, uh, there's a threat to oil 
Because, and this was the time, this is when the Shah was overthrown and, and the uh, uh, Islamic Republic was declared and Khomeini was in power in Iran. And he said, it cannot be that we fear uh, the cutoff of oil because even our enemies, like Khomeini, will, needs to sell the oil, right? Every enemy, every oil producing enemy of the United States has has been perfectly happy trying to sell as much oil as possible because they need <laughs> those resources for their various projects. So now let's think about it, right? Uh, Venezuela is an enemy of the United States at the present time, but we had no problem securing, continuing to secure Venezuelan oil. And you never heard any talk about mm. the, the, the threat to the United States security through Venezuela. In fact, Venezuela owned refineries right up and down the coast of the United States. Um, <laughs> even as, but, but what was the real threat? And this is what uh, the economist said. It seems like what we're unhappy with are the resources that oil provides our enemies, right? So it's it's great if Saudi Arabia has it because Saudi Arabia follows our guidelines, right? You know, in the Cold War and beyond, right? From, you know, Afghanistan uh, 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 forward. The Venezuelans do not. The Iranians do not. The Iraqis do not. And what do we do with, with those three countries, right? Even though we think there's some threat to secure or you know, or the world needs oil resources and needs the flow of oil. Well, what do we find the United States actually doing? Sanctioning those economies <laughs> and, right. and, and not letting them produce oil. Right. So apparently, the world isn't you know threatened by the cutoff of oil. Um, and we're or put it another way, we're the main threat, strategic threat to this. Yeah, the very enemies that we would be concerned if you buy into the myth that we'd be concerned wouldn't give us the oil or the ones that we're harming and preventing their ability to produce the oil that pur purportedly we're concerned about losing out on. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. Um, and and so I use so I use the example in the end of the book. I say so now imagine if Saudi Arabia is taken over by uh, Islamists and it renames itself the Islamic Emirate of Arabia. Um, what what do we know will happen? Uh, well, we know. Think about it. Uh, uh, pro Israelis and Democrats are going to be very upset, right? Because the the the, the most amazing thing that Mohammed bin Salman has done, the one the one uh, uh, thing I want to credit him for is he he uh, he's um, he's reduced the main opposition to the U.S. Saudi alliance in the United States, which was historically pro-Israeli groups in right. the United States. It is now the Washington Institute of Near East Policy that's championing uh, bin Salman, right? They love they love the the new relationship with the Emiratis, with uh, with uh, bin Salman and so forth, right? But imagine the Islamic Emirate of Arabia is declared. Well, we, uh, the pro-Israel groups are are going to be upset. The uh, defense folks, right, and defense contractors are going to be very, very upset. Uh, there's not going to be the same. There's not going to be investments in the United States anymore, uh, holdings of Treasury bills and so forth. Um, and instead, these resources that permits are going to be used, right, to 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 basically challenge U.S. Uh, 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 preferences in the region. So for, so if if you want, the real problem for the United States is the is what, you know, economists call the oil rents, the re, the, the resources that oil allows 
enemies of ours to have issues against our interests. But all, mm. all the time, the oil is flowing. So. Right. Yeah. It, uh, <clears throat> one thing I've written down in my notes here is, is those like sort of possible explanations is um, the, the love of power, you know, and ju- just like mm-hmm. one, one thing, uh, you know, like, like, it, it may not be necessary to sort of, you know, impoverish like uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo for capitalism to function. But one thing that capitalism ha- does do and has done historically is 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 uh, push certain countries, you know, and like it pres- especially the elites of those countries far, far above in terms of power, uh, the 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 you know rest of humanity so if if you're a member of the blob in you know in washington dc you can sort of exercise your will and and you know if you're if you're like not exactly a marxist per se but if you're a sort of student of like shakespeare and like greek tragedy and so on you you know that like someone having you know total power you know like but that tends to have a corrupting influence and then people will tend to go on madcap crusades, you know, and, 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 mm-hmm. uh, exercise a sort of like imperial hubris, you might say that could lead to the downfall of, of, uh, you know, empires you could read about in Herodotus or Thucydides. Um, I think, I think, I think that goes a long way to explaining ultimately what the U S was doing, uh, in 2003, as Holdren himself said, we're there to demonstrate our uh, to to show that we're the superpower. This is the kind mm. of thing we have to do, or we're the hegemonic power. This is exactly what Barry Posen said as well. It must be something about since there is no rational economic logic for the invasion, it must be something about prestige. Uh, uh, what's expected of us. And of course, as a, as a defense strategist, he thinks that's nuts. He thinks it's crazy, but he thinks that's what the politicians are up to. Right. There's definitely for, for the neocons at, at least, and, and just on the right generally, um, a lot of kind of, and even in the, in the kind of the scholars that they, that they uh, listen to uh, policy other or, or theory um, scholars that they love Machiavelli and glory and kind of, you know, Corey Robin has talked about this, dissatisfaction with with mere kind of marketism and and the need for imperialism in order to to do really kind of like glorious powerful things to kind of you know use use your power in a way that that really uh if it's not about force projection maybe it's ego projection i don't know but um what what, what else do we know about the the US Saudi special relationship then that we or what should we know about that if if it's not primarily uh, in fact actually about um you know oil and, and securing oil, how, how has that relationship functioned? And, and I guess it relates to what we've been talking about, but, but what, else, what else is there? What else can we learn from debunking the myth about what's really going on there? Well, the Saudis, since the, I mean, just think about it. It's a right-wing, you know, a right-wing autocracy. It's a lot easier to uh, and it's a lot easier to have relations with yeah. with, right. with uh, you know four people or two people or one yeah. person than having to deal with the you know the tr- the the complications that emerge from you know com- 
polities, with democratic right. politics, etc. Right. So the Saudis have been a gift for the United States. Uh, um, you know, it's a handful of, of, of uh, relative handful. Right. There are a lot of princes, but you, but you get the point. Yeah. It's this government that basically uh, has followed either. I wouldn't say they were forced to follow U.S. preferences, but their preferences have aligned in so many different areas. Right. Mm. And where they didn't align, they hardly mattered. Right. And mm. if you think about the mm. main the main non-alignment until until bin, bin Salman is ostensibly U.S. support for Israel. But but there were no, there was no cost to the United States for continuing to support Israel because there was nothing in particular that the Arab autocracies could do about it or, or mm. were able to do about it. Um, so, so meanwhile, the partnership flowed, intelligence sharing, especially after 9-11, uh, uh, cooperation in the, you know, in the uh, cooperation with the Reagan administration around the Reagan administration's uh, policies of counterinsurgency, the, the uh, 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 challenge to the Russian invasion in Afghanistan. The Saudis have been, uh, this, or let's say the Al Saud, the, the House of Saud, have been uh, close and reliable allies in a lot of different areas. And it's been a very lucrative relationship. You know, God bless mm. President Trump. Uh, <laughs> right? Just how much the Saudis were going to spend on uh, uh, U.S. weapons and to help his administration. I mean, I discovered when I was in Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, this was in the mid-90s. Um, basically, I was talking to a defense contractor, a vice president of McDonnell Douglas, and he would admit, you know, the Saudis are buying, the Saudis were asked to buy all these weapons for the from the United States at the time of yeah. the end of the Cold War, because it was very hard to sustain the high defense budgets with the Cold <laughs> War ending. And the Saudis basically step into the a breach and start buying all these tanks and jets mm. that they can't possibly use. And they literally do. They just rust out in the deserts of Saudi Arabia. And uh, it was explained to me and was subsequently confirmed even just by reading the newspapers uh, that uh, basically the, the Saudis were doing that to aid the Pentagon. Right. Mm. If, if defense budgets are going down um, and Pentagon wants uh, uh, the M1 tank line still still running. Well, if the Saudis buy these weapons, it reduces the uh, uh, unit costs for the Pentagon. Right. So there was a basically subsidies to the Pentagon. And they were quite explicit about this. And, and that goes a long way to also explain why, you know, the atrocities in Yemen uh, end up with the Yemenis discovering U.S. military um, bombs. And, and, you know, we're, our, our, we're all over, you know, um, the, our fingerprints are all over the, the atrocities there for that reason, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's true. You know, uh, a documentary just just appeared on Showtime. By, about the uh, you know murder of uh, 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 Jamal Khashoggi, and in the documentary, you know there's about six talking heads, and one that one that uh, uh, reoccurs is an ex Saudi ambassador, ex U S ambassador mm -hmm. to Saudi Arabia, and his name is uh, Rundell, and he's got a new book out uh, about uh, uh, Ben mm -hmm. Salman, and he, he he just makes this claim. 
given the importance of Saudi Arabia to the United States, and, he, and he's never very clear or explicit about what that means, so people might hear it and think oil flows, whatever, he, but he mm-hmm. says, given it, its strategic value, that certainly uh, trumps the murder of one person. And so, you know, we should, I don't want to see that Saudi, I don't want to see that relationship disturbed. I think many quarters of the United States, in, in the United States, think in the same way. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> that's a kind of interesting, like, like turnabout, you could say, from, <clears throat> you know, thinking, well, how useful is it to the United States versus how useful is that to Saudi Arabia uh, vis-a-vis uh, uh, us pressuring them into not murdering, you know, American legal residents with no consequences. Um, he, we- he weathered that. I mean, that, that it's just it's a non-issue now. The Washington Post keeps trying to do something about it. They're outraged. But it, but it, it's, it's, it does, it's water under the bridge at this point, as far as I can see. Yeah, we may. I think we may see somebody bringing that back up under a you know potential Biden administration, maybe. But before we move on from oil, you know, you you have a chapter about the uh, 1973, you know, the oil crisis and and a sort of mm-hmm. debunking of the fat of of the idea that this was some sort of like hinge point in the global economy, um, and you know because for so many years, you know, people have have uh, viewed it as as being this you know it was like oh suddenly we like we had the super cheap oil and then because the oil shock it went up like a ton and it had the huge impact and like that's somewhat true like like the price did increase but you know you you have a lot of interesting things to say about that so can you explain that for us uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so uh, you know, you know. I, I guess I, I guess I, let me say this: in the writing of this book, I was struck by how contested beliefs over time become uncontestable truths. Okay, <laughs> so in '73, right? So now, when we, when you know, you, as I say in the book, try this exercise yourself. Type OPEC embargo, or I can give you anyway. Type OPEC embargo, and you receive all these accounts of a so-called embargo by OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, that never embargoed anyone. There was no embargoed by the by that organization, but people, but people believe it. Now, back in '73. Um, Folks believe that OPEC couldn't possibly, the OPEC leaders couldn't possibly carry forward this like kind of project of raising prices and causing uh, 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 um, the kind of cata- you know, the catastrophe to the world economy as it was exaggeratedly imagined. Couldn't do it on their own. So back in the seventies, most Democrats and liberals did not attack. OPEC, the Arabs, or the Arabs in OPEC, they said it was big oil. It clearly was big oil behind this thing, and there was and it was Exxon Mobil, etc. Now it's remarkable that now, sixty years later or so, uh, all that contestation and let alone the facts of the matter disappear, and we we're just you know. Uh, uh, we, we just believe this thing that something called OPEC, you know, sent the world economy into the tails into a tailspin. By uh, the argument goes, embar- I mean, and folks can't keep track of who they think was embargoed, and so you even find textbooks and scholars and newspapers and journalists 
can't even settle on the right facts there. But uh, some folks say OPEC embargoed the United States, Western Europe and Japan. Other folks said OPEC embargoed the United States and other uh, supporters of Israel. And they and they also cut production. And that production cut is what led to the price rises that the United States was uh, and the rest of the world was suffering through. And which is what led to the gas lines that I Vitale you know, was suffering through uh, every week in order to drive to Stony Brook. Well, none of that is true, right? It's just none of those things happen. Yes, there are gas lines, but is you know, as as I think uh, more folks are coming to realize now when they study it, is those gas lines were really an artifact of the of the uh, uh, price control system that the Nixon administration had had uh, developed in two years prior to that, because that's when the so-called oil crisis was really beginning. Yes, prices rose at the time, uh, but the prices rose at the time uh, uh, for a a couple of reasons, that there was kind of supply-demand imbalance for sure, and there was a war going on in the Middle East. And And then and, and those things alone uh, drove price increases on the world market, which led OPEC to tell the Western oil companies, if you don't give us an increase in the tax and royalties, right, uh, uh, that, you, that you're committed to, um, that means you're, gonna, you're going to absorb all this excess profit by the higher prices. And so when folks talk about OPEC quadrupling the price of oil, they're confusing something called uh, 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 the prices that basically they're confusing the demand for increased taxes by the OPEC countries with the price that oil was actually being sold at. So OPEC itself did not raise oil prices. The oil prices were were, were increasing because of uh, structural factors and then and wartime factors. The oil companies were super happy with that because that meant they were increasing their profits tremendously. And the OPEC countries wanted a share of that. And that's and so when folks quote that prices prices went up four times uh, uh, and, and up to eleven dollars and sixty five eleven sixty five a barrel, there, that was actually never the price that oil sold at. It was that's a kind of accounting fiction that it, that was used to establish how much tax and royalty OPEC countries could uh, 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 get for the oil that Western oil firms were producing and selling on the world market. So basically, the 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 impact of the, the the causes of the price rises are gotten wrong. The actors who were doing things are gotten wrong. The consequences for the world economy are tr- are tremendously exaggerated. And economists understand that, right? So you know, I try to cite a lot of uh, works by oil economists who understand that that number one, we've exaggerated the, the consequences back in seventy three. And by the way, as a result of seventy three in part, um, 
the oil market has changed and fundamental and fundamentally has changed fundamentally such that the events of 1973 can never be repeated again. That's like just like basic economic wisdom. Yet for geopoliticians, so-called uh, strategists and energy security analysts, they imagine you know the world at any time can uh, face the consequences of a bin Laden or a Saddam Hussein or some other enemy of the United States seizing control of oil and uh, uh, cutting, cutting off the oil and, and strangling the world economy. These are fantasies with no, with no you know, uh, uh, evidentiary basis based on misreadings of events that happened uh, uh, half a century ago. You know, there's a, a lot I think we could talk about about the benefit of getting rid of these fantasies. And, and this is a time where there's a lot of fantasy going on, a lot of myths to debunk. You've got Stephanie Kelton and, and her, um, you know, uh, myth of the of the deficit of the and, and the, the way that, that people think uh, we fund uh, government programs. What if, you know, if Bernie had won, for example, I know that, that Bernie and Matt Duss uh, at least seem to not be uh, perpetuating the myth of needing to have a special relationship with Saudi Arabia and so forth. Uh, what would an ideal kind of leftist foreign policy look like uh, for, for those who in the administration understood that this is a myth and, and weren't beholden to it? And, and what do you think if a Biden administration, um, you know, I mean, at this point, God willing, you know, d despite, you know, basically being, you know, center right instead of left. But what, what are the chances that we can push that kind of administration to uh, see the light? And what would that look like? Okay, I'm going to let's let's do this in two parts. One, I'm going to add I'm going to do a slight correction on Matt Doss and Bernie. Oh, sure, I, sure. I, I, I met Matt Doss at a funeral uh, uh, a year, a, uh, basically a year ago now and uh, um, sent him my book when it came out. Mm. Uh, nonetheless, I think he's he wrote. Uh, recently, uh, or had was interviewed by some left uh, blog, mm. or uh, um, and basically sort of said, you know, the United States and Saudi Arabia since 1945 have been in a strategic relationship that traded mm. oil for security, right? Which no is kidding. one of the which is wow. one of the myths I said don't exist. But here's here's the here's the main thing. And his argument is such that we no longer need that oil because we're uh, okay. we're we're energy independent. So I so. See. If you want, the anti-blob uh, left, you know, uh, is embracing these kinds of uh, uh, ideas about energy independence, the flow of oil to the United States and so forth. So I'm not so I'm not I if you know. Uh, they're severing. They're, they're happy to. They're happy to sever the relationship, but for the wrong reasons. That yes, that could yes, that could yes. that could come back to hurt us. You know, later on, if if that if that myth keeps sustained, you know, and if it, if it seems right. But then again, it confirms the point that I made earlier, which is something like this. It is very hard to disabuse people of things. So so perhaps for strategic reasons, I mean, you believe it yourself, right? But basically, I think they do. But uh, the, the whole goal is to is to find a way to uh, alter that relationship, right? Uh, uh, distance themselves from the Saudis. And this is the, you know, th this is how they believe. Uh, um, th this is what they believe is true and why it's uh, to do so, etc. So, but what would a Biden administration do? I, you know, um, I, I, I don't think very much. 
Right. I mean, right. look, at the, right. folks, the folks, the folks who, you know, uh, Matt Boss is not. Oh, and by the way, I wrote to Matt and told him, hey, Matt, you know, I want you to look at chapter three of my book and and and, and uh, uh, revisit that point about Ibn Saud. And uh, I, he never wrote back. Um, but hmm. the Matt Dosses of the world are not Biden's advisors. Right. Except, right. you know. Right. There's, you know, there's little bits of contact, et cetera. Um, you know, I think it's going to be very hard for the Biden administration to um, uh, move away from, you know, the per- from their Persian Gulf positions based on their own, you know, kind of the own the constituencies behind them, et cetera. They might not be happy with bin Salman. But then again, you know, Obama was not happy with bin Salman. And I and Ben Rhodes, right, Ben Rhodes and Obama understood what uh, bin Salman had done and what did they end up doing still because they wanted the uh, um, Iran nuclear deal they basically uh, uh, you know um, gave the Saudis what they needed for Yemen right? sure. they yeah. understood that this was a this was a disaster right in the making but there were but the nature of politics in Washington is such that uh, you know, we have to do this. It's a trade, I think. Um, so I think it's going to be very hard for a Democratic Biden administration to radically reimagine the United States' position in the Middle East. Yeah, unfortunately, we're, we're with Trump in office. Uh, MBS can, can just uh, execute an American resident and, and journalist uh, out in the open. Under the Biden administration, the Biden administration will say you have to do that shit behind closed doors and not make it so obvious. Um, <laughs> I mean, when, 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 when Obama and I droned weddings, we made sure to show that it was a mistake, right? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's not the most uplifting point to end on, though. I don't know, Ryan, do you have a question that might lead to a more uplifting, uh, you know, uh yeah i have a question about about um <clears throat> well you know i mean that the the whole idea of of oil craft and like the history of the oil industry leads naturally to the question of how do we get rid of this and especially in the context of climate change we're like well you know if we want to preserve the biosphere oil's got to go and it's got to go as soon as possible and there, you know, from from my read of the technology and the science, that is that could happen. You know, Norway is going to say uh, five years from now, no more gas powered automobiles for, for passenger cars and light uh, trucks sold in Norway uh, as of t- as of 2025 that they're banned. Um and, you know, it's like it's certainly possible to imagine a sort of like crash World War Two mobilization, you know, where it's like, all right, carbon fuels are out like coal is dying. It's dying quickly um, in the United States. And they're like, OK, we're just going to do the same thing to oil. We're going to just do a sort of Manhattan project for green energy and just like build that shit out as quickly as we can. Um, you know, we're going back to public transit. We're going for electric cars, electric bikes, electric scooters, electric uh, skateboards, other vehicles, you may imagine. Um, what is your view on the sort of viability of, uh, you know, a, a kind of post oil project, a way to kind of break loose of this 
you know, just just through main force, I suppose, uh, uh, the, this this goofy mindset to think like, ah, oh, our whole, you know, our foreign policy and our sort of national identity needs to revolve around this key commodity. You know, one way to get rid of that would just be to say, yeah, oil, fuck it, we don't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. possible? Well, do you think? Well, I, you know, I. Uh, I am not an energy analyst, so I don't, you know, I haven't been spending the twenty past 20 years consulting with firms and uh, uh, offering my expertise in these, in, in these areas. But I can tell you, some energy analysts these days are talking about the coming, or we're already here, of, remember how uh, 10 years ago we were talking about peak oil, that, we're, that demand, was, demand was increasing, increasing, there was going to be less and less oil, the prices were going to go up and up and up, and that's going to lead to more wars. Well, now, of British Petroleum, for instance, has announced uh, that they believe uh, we've passed peak demand for oil, that some of the oil firms themselves, oil giants, recognize that the demand for the product over the over time is declining and that they have to move you know, faster rather than slower into uh, rethinking their, you know, uh, 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 their business, basically. And there are plenty of energy analysts who support that, but there's debates about this. Some of the West, some of the biggest U.S. firms have so far are, are so far been the antagonists to that view. So I think there's a possibility for this, uh, 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 you know, in de- determ- de- depending on what kinds of uh, um, uh, uh, benefits that uh, the Biden administration wants to give to alternatives to the to the oil giants, et cetera, what you know, how they use government policy. But there will be big fights about, you know, how much we could support this kind of transition to uh, a a post carbon economy. But there are certainly analysts who see that coming sooner rather than later. And and not simply those folks who are, you know, uh, talking to uh, 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 Green New Dealers. Well, I can say that uh, I think I'm going to get some solar panels installed on my house uh, in the next month. So, you know, maybe that's a good sign. Um, Doing your part. What a good American you are. Coops. By the way, uh, if if you are a homeowner, just a little public service announcement here. There's a federal tax credit. Um, it's got under it was uh, 30 percent. Uh, basically, if you have enough money to, to, you know, you pay a lot of taxes, you could write off 30% of the cost of a new solar installation last year. Now, on, on, uh, 2020, it's down to 26%. Next year, according to the law, it'll go down to 22%. So now's the time to get, get your panels in. Unless, you know, I mean, what will happen is if I get them in now, then that means Biden's going to increase the tax credit to like 50 percent next year. But, you know, I'm not going to think about that possibility um, because I love my sunshine. Anyways. um, Yeah. Any final comments, Alexi? No, no. I was going to ask Bob if he had any final thoughts. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate it. No, oh, and I appreciate it too. And it's uh, uh you know, it's great uh, connecting with folks uh, 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 this way. And uh, I am now a subscriber to the podcast, and I'm going to listen to the Dan Bessner uh, episode uh, tonight. So wonderful, wonderful. Send your email directly, directly to Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's. 
<laughs> it's been a pleasure, Bob. Once again, the, the, the book is Oilcraft, The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunts U.S. Energy Policy. A really wonderful book. And uh, we hope you come back again. It was really a pleasure. Take good care, guys. Okay. You too. You Thanks too. for listening, you everybody. I'll uh, see you in the next episode.